Good evening, everyone. How's everybody doing? All right. Wonderful to have you all here. Welcome to our panel for the evening, which is the revolution will not be televised. It will be spoken. That's right. <laughs> so give it up for the panel. They are all six of them, possibly the largest panel that we are having actually for GTLF 2019. My name is Tamina Kausji. Uh, I'm a journalist, and today I am your moderator for this stellar panel. Now, just reading off what's in the program book, first and foremost, um, the power of spoken word lies in its visceral immediacy. In the days of the Harlem Renaissance, the beat poets, and Jill Scott Heron, spoken word became a poetry of social protest and revolution. More recently, Ala Salah became an icon of revolution in Sudan when she stood on a car to lead protest poetry chants. Do today's spoken word poets connect to this legacy? We look at how their art breaks the silence on taboo topics, urging radical sociopolitical commentary and change. So all the way from Ginsburg who said, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, to Kate Tempest. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by payment plans. So today, I hope to contextualize the manifold myriad voices of my stellar panel of six poets from Singapore, Syria, Malaysia, each one speaking truth to power, always at immense personal and even artistic expense, but speak, they always do. In the lineup today, we have Dinesha Kartigesu, Jack Malik, <laughs> Moafak Al-Hajar, Nana, Subhas, and Pretty Nair, pretty please. So I believe essentially my role here is to um, curate the conversation, ensure it continues on, since this is already a wide circle, and all questions that I do ask are not just rhetorical, but they are for anyone on the panel to answer. We've got two mics here, so I hope you can just circulate them amongst yourselves. Let's start with first and foremost, the biggest. I want your manifestos, your list of demands. <laughs> Drawing also from, of course, Saul Williams, who I think anybody with an interest in beat poetry and slam knows a little bit about. Why do you write what you write, and why do you choose also to speak it? I'm opening it up, any one of you, whoever wants to go first. And in the meanwhile, I must also say, um, we haven't got anything concrete planned, but any one of the poets may actually spurt out perhaps a line or two, or even share one of their best little pieces, if they wish. Let's wait and see. Muafak, Nana? Okay, uh, good evening. I, I think the, the question of why do you write is uh, or has a, a common answer between, between uh, every writer, um, whether they're poets or, or uh, novelists or whatever. Um, why do I write? I feel like I, I write because uh, I want to be myself, so it's just a, a matter of being uh, yourself. In, 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 in this um, period of time, um, 
looking at the, the, the story that is happening now in Syria and what, what, what has been happening for, for now 10 years, um, we needed to write. We needed to, uh, you know, kind of document everything is happening because we saw with our eyes how can you fake history and how can you change facts on, on the ground. Um, so, in the first place, I remember I wrote these diaries of, of a future country. And I, I started writing it with the revolution uh, in, in Syria, trying to um, write everything happening around me, personally and to the others uh, uh, in Syria. Now, um, why do I speak? I think uh, this has something to do with Arabic poetry in general, because this is something that I find uh, interesting because Arabic poetry is oral. It, the tradition of Arabic poetry is oral. Since Al-Jahiliya, which is the earliest age of, of uh, Arabic literature, which was only poetry before Islam, before anything happened in, in that um, uh, area, uh, poetry was meant to be oral. We had something like uh, called Souq Uqav, where poets would stand in, a, in, a, in, a, in some area and people would be passing by and you as a poet have to recite your poem and then whoever has the, 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 like the, the largest crowd is kind of the winner or, you know. So See that, how that resonates like 4,000 years later? Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's to be a poet in the Arab world is to be a performer. You have to perform your poetry. Mm -hmm. It's written, it can be read, but in the first place, it should be uh, um, spoken. Yeah, and that was the interesting thing. I was speaking, I was asking Mofak earlier, and he said, I don't know whether I classify myself as a spoken word poet, because the oral history from his culture, his language, it literally has always been spoken. And I can identify with that. I'm not a spoken word poet, but uh, one of my first languages was Urdu, growing up in Hyderabad. And for me, it was a bit uh, of a mind blowing thing to discover as a teenager there is something called spoken word poetry. Because for me, shires, etc., were always spoken. Yeah. So, Nana, I see that you also have the mic. Why do you write? And <laughs> what is the raison d'etre behind it? Um, we don't have to be nice about past, past, yeah? Just past. Where is his hand? Um, the reason I write what I write is because only I can write what I write. Only I can write my experiences as non-binary, as polyamorous, as, as somebody who likes ice cream so much that I would crave for it in the middle of the night. So I write because I am the sole guardian of my stories. Yes, Dinesha. Um, I think I write because I do. <laughs> it's, it's a thing, like I never knew that what I was writing, so my background's in theater, um, and I fell into spoken word. It was, I was writing things, I found there was an open mic, this open mic felt safe, I turned up with a piece of paper, I read, um, there was a good response, and then I was like, oh, open mics are a thing, Google, go to the next open mic, and the next open mic. So it became, it was purely, I was writing, I needed a space to say it, but eventually it became a thing of, oh, you are an openly queer poet, Oh, you are a Malaysian Indian poet. Oh, you're a Malaysian Indian man who does poetry. And then all of these different identities started intersecting. Then it became a bit of representation as well. 
because I am the only Malaysian Indian man in this panel. I'm also the only Malaysian Indian man uh, within the greater poetry scene in KL. So it became, then it became a thing that I have to write, I have to write even more. I have to tell these stories that are not being told, echoing what Nana said, because only I can tell these experiences now. I see you holding on. Yeah. Subash first then. Um, so I write because it is rap, spoken word, hip hop, you know. It's uh, something they'll never be able to control. That's why. I write, um, I mean, I grew up, I guess, with my sister Preeti. And, um, there was a lot of trauma in our growing up experience. And a lot of that is also rooted in the fact that I couldn't place myself. And I couldn't um, look at artists that were from Singapore to understand the Singapore story. Like I felt everybody was just talking to, to perpetuate towards profit, if, if, I, if I may say. So for me, I was writing because I knew that somehow I lucked out in this game of life. I, played, I, I, I could play basketball really well as a kid. I played on the national team and I got onto like, I went to a Chinese school, Hua Chong, and then I went to Yale and US college. And when I graduated, I asked myself, like, my, I asked myself this question, like, well, I kind of told myself, I didn't live my life different from everybody else around me up to that point, only for it to be the same. So I write because I know that we can change things. We must write. We must document our personal histories. And we must write for... I grew up listening to Kendrick Lamar and Nas, and they raised me when my dad left. So if I can do that and just add and make space for other people to create where I'm from, then I think we can go very far. And I don't know what that looks like, but we have to work and we have to try. So that's why I write. So all through, I'm also hearing about um, not just representation, but also representing yourself. And interestingly enough, Dinesha said, um, the open mic feels like a safe space. Now that's interesting. Anyone want to comment on why that is, even though it is a public arena, particularly all of us coming from uh, Asian or otherwise even conservative societies, how did that open up? Was it something intrinsic, true to the art form itself, or is it about the fact that youth always rebels against um, the dominant narrative? So to clarify, that particular open mic felt like a safe space mm -hmm. because the curator was specifically looking for LGBT stories. And the first poem I ever performed was a poem called Dear Future Husband. So that was, I couldn't think of anywhere else I could perform that poem. And so that's why it was a safe space. It was the curation of that curator, of the host of that open mic. Mm. There have been open mics that have not been safe spaces. Also true in the industry, I'm sure. So now moving into the bigger question, politics, poetry, and the interplay of that. Okay, Preeti, you got the mic. You got to take this one. So your, your most recent brush with the law in Singapore. Now you've also spoken about this before in an earlier panel today, but within the context of spoken word, expressing yourself, why is it important to still be, even though you're cognizant of the risks, to go ahead and still represent take up the platform? I think it's, okay, so I do comedy videos online and I do mainly satire, parodies, and I just do a lot of social commentary on the stuff that happened in Singapore. So, I mean, it started out started off just being fun and I could poke fun at a lot of things, but eventually, after using my platform for a couple of years, I realized that I can do so much more and because I have this platform, 
I can help speak for the people who don't have a voice. And also, I can say so much and do so much and maybe have actual change just by making a YouTube video, just by making a really funny viral video. And that's crazy to me that I have that power. So I think, of course, when my, my brush with the, with the law was actually when a racist ad came out and this Chinese guy painted his face brown. So my brother and I made a rap video making fun of the whole brown face incident in Singapore. And we were given a two-year conditional warning because um, we, under the Sedition Act, so basically, we weren't allowed to say those things because we were creating a strife between, between races in Singapore. But because of our video, we got the law minister in Singapore to, to speak out and say that racism does exist in Singapore and actually acknowledge that. And now, I think it's safe to say that an incident like that won't happen anytime soon, hopefully. And, and I think it's, it's so crazy that it was a rap video that caused all that crazy ruckus in Singapore media for like the last two, three months. And we got a minister to acknowledge that. And so many people started talking about racism and started being more conscious of the way they portray themselves in TV shows. And they know that painting your skin brown is not okay. So it's insane that a video made that all these realizations happen for Singaporeans. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So quite literally, that is truth and speaking truth to power in action. Um, Jack, I want to ask you about the political origins of poetry and how they can't actually be divorced. You were sharing a couple of really interesting quotes with me oh. about that as well, which I loved. Okay. Um, first and foremost, I think uh, I would like to share with everyone. Uh, I guess this is a safe space. Uh, I'm, I welcome any disagreement. Um, growing up, uh, with poetry, with literature, for the past five years, I noticed uh, there are two sets of people. Mm. The first one are poets that uses activism as their platform, as their medium, uh, as, a, as a way. And the second one is activists who uses poetry as medium. So what is the difference? The difference is that Poets that become activists, they, are, they retain the poeticness. So the, the form is it's complex. They, it, has, it has technique, it has beauty, it has uh, everything a poem has, a poetry has. But however, the second one is more direct. It, it, it uses poetry to justify a means. That is my point of view on uh, the separation of political and, uh, and poetry. And if I, would like, if, if I may, I would like to share another quote. Uh, recently, I just finished reading an anthology of the New Yorker Poets Cafe, uh, the title Allowed. So it's, it's a 500-page anthology of performance art. Mm -hmm. um, this is one line, this is one quote um, regarding poetry and political. The poetry of politics and war, or urban war, necessitates that the poet tells the tale of the past and perhaps present too, I added the present, and that there, there also be a generous admission, the possibility of hope. So political doesn't necessarily you are fighting for the past and the present, it, it also opens up chapters, hope, 
Isn't that what poets strive, strive to do? So the generosity of hope. So, yeah, that's, that's my point of view. I see Moafak wants to add to that, please. I, I think um, Adunis, the Syrian poet, uh, who say, once said that every poem is political. And I, I, I see a share... round of agreement. Do you all agree with that? Yeah. Okay, fact. <laughs> I, I want to share something that is written by a Tunisian poet called Abu Qasim Al Shabbi. And he says, uh, I'll read it in Arabic and then I'll read the translation. He says, And that means, if one day a people desire to live, then fate will answer their call, and, then, and their night will begin to fade, and their chains break and fall. This line of poetry was the spark of the Tunisian uh, revolution, which was the spark of the Egyptian revolution which was the key element for the Libyan and the Syrian revolution. And the revolution is still happening all over the, the, the Middle East and the Arab world in general. Uh, I think I, I am a person that cannot go back to my country because of my poetry. Uh, and I, I, I chose exile so that I can keep writing because it matters for me and for my people and for the narrative that is needed to, to be there. So every poem is political. Mm. Nana, you write about, among various things, uh, women, the female body, censoring of everything to do with desire to even the way you exist in society as a Malay Muslim woman. Why is it so important for this voice, for your voice to be represented and how politically charged is your poetry, despite being so intensely personal? Uh, um, oh, that, would, uh, that would require uh, an hour of sitting down <laughs> with a therapist. Um, I, I, I just feel, I believe that um, I believe that what is political, what is personal, can be political. Um, some of my poems stem from there. Like, for example, um, I have this poem called These Tits. And it first started with just um, looking at myself in front of a mirror and going, wow, my body has changed so much uh, compared to when I was younger. Uh, and I was just making fun of it. Wow, these tits used to hang from the heavens. So that became the first line. And then from there, um, the process of writing uh, a poem, uh, personally for me, my process was to write down and regurgitate like everything that's in my mind and then parse through. And then what came out of that personal thought became this political message about how women are mostly valued by our physical appearances and how and who gets to decide the value of our physical appearances so so yeah and when it boils down to it do we really have a choice to not make our poems not political hmm. it's and almost intensely just intrinsic it's intuitive. Yeah. 
From there, moving on to the wider scope of media itself, because we're speaking about the revolution not being televised. But then again, it's almost like your head is a TV these days. We're such visual creatures, uh, spending so much time on our smartphones. But let's talk now about how political and even personal messages get diluted in mainstream media, which I feel, correct me if I'm wrong, is the main reason why each one of you do what you do, to ensure there's visibility, there's space, and you are heard, despite how diluted it is in mainstream media. So, if I may, that's, that's crazy, because earlier this year, Channel News Asia um, worked with, as part of this brownface incident, right? So, in an act of what I call cowardice uh, and self corporate self-preservation, they pulled a song that we were working on um, with, that I was working on with the Migrants Band Singapore, and a song called Utopia uh, that we worked on for months. So they pulled that one song. And um, so it reminded me, la, because that was the first time I actually en even entertained working with the state, a mouthpiece of the state, to say anything because I thought, hey, this is not about me. It's never been about me. It's about what we can do together Number one, the money that we can get for the migrants' ban, who, are, who has no minimum wage in Singapore. So the money that could come from this project, but on top of that, it's also the, um, the message. And so how convenient is it to choose only the, the convenient parts of the multiplicity of who I am and as an artist, the convenience of, of erasing migrant narratives, you know, uh, all to make sure that brands continue working with them. You know, so it's, it's all about money. And I think what, um, going back to, to the earlier point about uh, poetry and activism, right? I'm really thinking, I mean, we are CNA. We are Channel 5. We got to do it because they're never on the streets. We are on these streets. We grew up there. We are on those HDB blocks. We know what it's like to live on rent. We have stories that need to be heard. So if we don't speak them, then like, they don't appear at all in the national narrative. So I think... Um, for me, that list of demands has always been justice, has always been uh, human flourishing, life chances. How that looks has to be tailored to the times, but the intention starts, of course, like with, with just sharing the stage with like empathy and compassion, and then how it looks along the process, I don't, we don't know because, I mean, in Singapore especially, like, there is no pathway to doing this. We are, we are building the plane as we fly it, but um, we know that they're scared we know that they are reacting ne like we've never seen before. So we know we're doing something right, <laughs> and we know we got to keep doing it. Yeah, you're doing everything right, I'd say. Dinesh, I want to move to you on this point. Now, especially in a state like Malaysia, whereby there is no mainstream narrative for a minority queer poet who is male, how important is it that you are able to represent your narrative in your words, in your spaces? even if it is not going to be broadcast, let's say, on the evening news here? How important? Um, I think it's incredibly important. And I think the best way to describe that is I once did a storytelling event in PJ, which is very urban middle class. And this Indian girl walks up to me after my storytelling session, and she says, you are the first gay Indian I have ever met. And she identifies as queer. So can you imagine what it's like in her life? That, that is one of the reasons why I continue to do the work I do. Because if, if that person is feeling that way, I, I can imagine what other, in, and I don't even need to talk about queer, 
I mean, if you look at the Malaysian mainstream narrative, uh, the Indian narrative is always a add-on. It's uh, we are only needed when it's Malaysia Day or Merdeka um, or Dipawali, and that's when you'll see all the ads because they'll need the Indian actors. Um, otherwise, we are never included, and so it's 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 tricky because I'm both queer and I'm also Indian, two minorities, right? So I think for me it's very important because. There are people out there, and I just think of myself when I was growing up, I didn't have that narrative. I didn't see myself in anything, and I didn't even see gayness or queerness in anything. That is why I, it's very important that I do it. Jack, despite also being a majority in Malaysia, why is it still important to represent your school of thought through your work? Hmm. Why is it important to to share my school of thought. Uh, well, uh, as I've discussed with um, with you uh, this afternoon, the thing is, uh, a poet needs to be aware. Uh, I remember a few years ago, Nana, when, when I was uh, a blooming young poet, Nana reminded me to, uh, to be aware of your speech because in, in Klang Valley, there was a open mic that caters for queer. So I, myself, I need to understand who am I. I work, um, my, my background is, um, I have a bachelor in culinary arts. I graduated as a cook. And in the in kitchen, in the, in the back house, we have shit tons of labels. Potato, um, 1st of September 2019. I understand that sometimes people don't like being labeled because of stereotypes or misconception or anything. But in kitchen, labeling is important because you need to differentiate between salt and sugar. You need to differentiate between has this fish been one month in the fridge or has it been a year? So that's important. Taking that analogy for artists, you need to understand who you are. As Dinesha said, he is an Indian Malay, uh, Indian Malaysian uh, that is queer. So for me, I need to break down as minute as I can. I am a Malay, Muslim, Malaysian, uh, male, cisgender, heterosexual, yada yada yada, political, non-political. If uh, but for Rika, I don't usually say I'm liberal or conservative because I don't have any point, opinion on that. But knowing who I am, I wouldn't go to an open mic, uh, open, queer open mic and say, can I have a slot? Because that is not my space. I wouldn't submit something, uh, for example, oh, calling for Indians, in Indian writers, then, oh, uh, Actually, my, my grandfather, uh, he's from India. So, you yeah, know, I feel yeah. you. I've personally said yeah. no several times when asked mm. to uh, speak or um, represent as a Malaysian Indian woman. I am not a Malaysian Indian woman. <laughs> I have origins from yeah. there, but yeah, yes. I yeah. feel you. So, however, do I still get to rep I, Can I still be represented? Yeah, sure. Because uh, I, I have my own feels. Just imagine that we have 
many playing fields, you know. Just you need to find which one is your playing field. For example, maybe I can play at the translation, you know, from Malay to English. Or maybe I can play with Persuratan uh, Layu, which is uh, uh, Malay scriptures or anything. As long as I don't violate um, other people's spaces. Yeah, I think that is important for an artist because if you're, as an artist, you are unaware, it's either you are going to have a lot of problems or you are creating the problem. Yes. Right, so from there moving into um, the mainstreaming of spoken word. This is what I actually personally take as an example, uh, and I shared it with a couple of you when we spoke earlier. Um, climate activist Greta Thunberg's United Nations speech. She may not classify herself as a spoken word poet, but she was speaking, and that did go viral. However, let's talk about the tricky balance between the fact that she is a very privileged minority, and that is what allows for the space, the highlight, the power grabbing of uh, media outlets trying to get that first video uploaded out there, branded with whatever their station is, and saying that, look, here we are giving voice. How problematic is that to you all, as in some form, shape, or manner, uh, representing a minority opinion, that you do not have access to that kind of a platform, though you may be speaking of equally critical issues? Mafak. Um, about, I feel I feel that in this in this very specific case, uh, that the vilification of Greta Thunberg as somebody uh, with a lot of privilege, um, but she wasn't the one who put herself on that pedestal. It was a society who thought that oh, a quick fix to the environmental problem would be oh, let's put up this young girl and draw murals of her all over the place. Um, also, what I find really interesting is that detractors and supporters alike like to cut Greta's speech at the point before she said, but I am one of those fortunate ones. So I feel like she, she is an example, uh, that particular speech was actually an example of somebody using their platform to amplify marginalized voices, to amplify uh, a, 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 a call towards change. Um, is it perfect? Probably not, but she's a young girl. We, as a society, should do something about our own uh, embedded conceptions. On, on, on the other hand, uh, there was this video that went viral last month, I think. There was this injured guy running in the streets, and uh, uh, there was fire shooting behind him. You can hear it. And he was reciting poetry about how he loves his country, Iraq. And just last month happened. But this video didn't really go viral uh, to, to the whole world. It just went viral in our area, maybe, because I am following the Iraqi protests and everything around this. So maybe I saw it because of, of that. So why, um, why doesn't this content go viral and others uh, go viral? Of course, under, underprivileged uh, communities would not have this, the same space that privileged communities would have. 
But still, I think even this video of this guy has really in, in, you know, inspired lots of people and, and made many people to, to go down to, to the streets. So I think this is, this is the role of, of this spoken poetry and how, how effective it is. It's, it's crazy when you see him, he's bleeding and he's still reciting and crying. He's in a very emotional situation. He's crying, reciting poetry that is not his. He's just reciting from, from his, maybe, he, I don't know, but you know, it's, it's, it's so touching. May I? Yeah, so actually this is, I've been thinking a lot about Greta Thunberg and how the media attention that her speeches have, but I feel that our movements towards justice must be open-ended enough because we need Greta Thunbergs, but we also need indigenous voices. We need people who are naysayers. In fact, I'm actually going to defend the right for someone to disagree. I'm going to defend for them to respectfully like um, argue, of course. Um, and I go back to a Jay-Z quote, what you reveal, you heal. We must, we must, we must allow for that space. But how to at the same time have that space, but also be intolerant of intolerance, I guess that's the struggle of our times in this 24-7 news cycle. So a lot of times I have to remind myself to step back, to let things process, because by the time you respond and then people vilify you and next thing you know they find the next victim or next target, that's how the internet works. So for me, for me to like actually take the lessons, the, the, the essence of what someone is saying, it requires that, okay, let me acknowledge this person's privilege, um, at the same time like really get to the root of what is being said, is, that, is this someone who's speaking from that place that we need? Because it's not about us. It's not about how I feel about Greta Thunberg's speech. It's not how, about, about how I feel. Because no matter how eloquent she is, it won't gonna. But the last poet who was on stage, I didn't understand Malay. I don't understand the indigenous languages. But I was sitting there like, I need this book. I need to learn. So we must also appreciate that so many different peoples have different touch points towards that change, towards that maybe radicalization or towards that point of like, oh, wow, this matters. And so, um, and privilege also, like, like the element of fire. Just because Greta is on stage um, with privilege doesn't mean that it diminishes my own. It doesn't mean that it, it could uplift someone else's. So for me, I think it's about finding the value and just attaching that towards a larger like um, rallying call towards action. At the end of the day, it's about demanding action from not from the metal straws, like changing how you use your straws, but really political action. We must demand change from those who represent us. So change from the highest level. From there, moving into the fact that does the spoken word community in, in each place that it is, does it need to be collectivist or is it all right for it to be more about the individual? Nana, big sigh as you consider or perhaps May you speak. you want to take this first? Okay. Uh, well, I'm, I'm speaking on an a artistic side because on the political side, oh, that, that, that is a can of worms that maybe we... We can open yeah, it Yeah, we can wish. open it to see. Okay, anyway. Uh, as, a, as an artist, if you want to grow, collective is important. Take, for example, uh, Indonesia. Uh, artists, uh, a collective, Ruang Rupa, they are the first Southeast Asian collective 
that has been uh, appointed to to curate documenta. And the documenta is a big thing in the art, uh, visual art world. So, and of all the people, you know, we have uh, Japanese, Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, Thailand. But the first uh, collective, uh, the first group is uh, in South Southeast Asia, uh, was Indonesia. And it's not even individual, it's collective. Around 15 people, if I'm not mistaken. So, and I myself, uh, I am from Project Rabat. It's an uh, art collective in Ipoh, uh, multidisciplinary. The founder was a musician, still is a musician. Uh, published 11 books in 10 years, in the span of 10 years. Uh, and I am partly here today because of him, because of the art collective. So also, and I, I also remember three years ago, I started as as just Jack, you know. <laughs> but I got the platform, uh, if Walls could talk. I am part of the Walls generation, if I may add. Even though it, it is only a short span, three years, but I, I, I heck, if I wanna coin that term, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna coin that term. I'm Walls generation, and, and Vesha, Lily, me, Nana, uh, Denisha, we, we were part of that. The reason I know all of these people because of walls. And we promote each other. Hey, uh, I, I know this one crazy poet, you know, his works uh, brilliant. Then he ended up at festivals, she ended up at uh, international literature festivals and whatnot. So that's how, if not collectively being in a, in a group, you are collectively promoting each other. You know, have pro, uh, collectively have a conscious of always pushing each and everyone. So there has to be some cohesion. Some cohesion. Mafak. I, I think individuality is more important in poetry. When 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 you are writing as an individual, you are representing many people behind it. If poetry was meant to be. Um, for, for for others, it, it doesn't it doesn't deliver the message. But when it's in when it's about the individual himself, when it's about the poet himself, it resonates. It's all about resonance, and you cannot make resonance. You cannot plan that I'm going to write to the to the Malaysian people, and I start my poem with "Oh Malaysian people," da 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 da. No, it shouldn't be like this. The, the personal experience resonates with people and that's when, when, it, when it delivers something. Collective work is important, but it comes after individual works. Universality. Nana, did you have something to add? Artists, I feel we all have different targets and different goals and different intentions and different approaches to how we practice our uh, our craft and, and, and our politics. Uh, I, have, I have a lot of baggage when it comes to collectives. Um, because, because of this. Why because is there so much so of baggage? That there's, also that, there's also a bit of a running theme mm. amongst particularly the spoken word collective, mm. regardless of which country you're looking at. Why so much baggage? Because we are all, like, like Mofak said, we are all individuals with individual POVs, with individual stories. And, that, and as poets, 
um, we tend to, like Jack, dissect to the minute details of our identity, of our political standings. And therefore, we are very aware of our own self. When we are aware of our own self, all these differences become more and more apparent. When they are more and more apparent, friction becomes a bit easier to come by. Uh, and being sensitive people, you know, just a little bit of friction could cause a huge tear in our hearts. I do, I do understand the need and the importance of a collective because we, especially spoken word poets that are here, I know, are, have taken huge risks in our pieces, in our art, in, in our performances. We talk about queerness, we talk about political uh, uh, revolts, we talk about uh, revolutions. And these risky behavior requires a strong network system. But how do we balance that with our own individualities? That's, That's still not finding that balance. Yeah, I, I kind of think it also boils back down to how we all create art to kind of express ourselves and as a form of catharsis. So the baggage that we all talk about, this is how we, we deal with the baggage and why we got to put it out, out there because if we're true to ourselves, someone out there will for sure see kind of like how genuine your work is and how someone out there is definitely going to feel the same way at some point in their lives or know someone who's going through something like that. So that's how our work will always resonate with somebody from some random place in the world. It's always going to resonate. Yeah. Uh, I think... Uh, I get what Nana is trying to say. Uh, I mean... Banyak banyak PA uh, in Malay, meaning too many hats get so much attitude, you know. In basic, you know, in English, uh, too many cooks spoil the broth. So basically, that, yeah. Because, yeah, when I say, when you are aware of yourself, then you are aware of other people, and you are aware of their problematic thing, then how do we navigate? with each other, how do we navigate ourselves with them? So, um, yeah, that's, that is, that's a problem that, and I think any collective, any society, any uh, circle of people need to understand, yeah? For example, um, I used to stay with a uh, with with a, with a housemate, uh, and we 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 set up a, a small, really small collective because uh, one one of my mentors said that to create a scene you just need two people, and by that spirit, yeah, we we are a collective of two people. So, but uh, I know um, his temperament. He knows my temperament. We're both slackers. So we don't mind like, oh, okay, you didn't clean the whatever, you know, whatever. So, but that is between uh, me and him. What if we add you in the picture? What if we add Denisha in the picture? Pretty, then Mwafa, then Nana, then everyone. Let, let's say, let's uh, hypothetically, we're stuck together in this room. 
how long until we can keep our sanity? So in 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 a community, that's what happens. Speaking of sanity, but Subhash first. Yeah, just really quickly. I think also it's worth. For me, I find it super hard to find people to collaborate. Actually, um, for me, actually the the best people to collaborate with are people who like it's their first project or they're just working or starting out. And I like to keep my collaborations really low key because like every time there's a there's anything goes mainstream, there seems to be this effect of like when money comes into the picture, like it's really, really difficult. This is just, as an, I'm an independent artist. Everything that we do is like from our own pockets. Four jobs, five jobs, give it to me. You know what I mean? So well, I'm, I'm think, I think really it's about why too many cooks spoil the broth, 100%. Why are the cooks in the kitchen? Like that's, I guess, the question that I always ask myself. I always ask like the people around me. Um, and I think like how do we, if any collective were to work, it's, the question is for me, how do you have each other's backs without like eventually ending up at groupthink or eventually like just being an a, a echo chamber or surrounding yourself with yes people? And um, whenever I work with someone, this is why rap is so difficult where I'm from, where it's in Singapore. I don't know if it's the same way here, but um, it takes that depth. We have, like for me, I'm on a project of like healing through my art. I'm on a project of trying to be, like trying to dismantle certain elements of my own masculinity through my art. And it's hard to find other people who care about that or put that before the ego or the profit. So yeah, it becomes this very strange space because my, um, my really good friend, his name is Chris, uh, he goes by Fox. He has an album out called Iklas. And that's how he, that sincerity is how he approaches his art. And so I guess it's about finding the people who are on that same pathway project with you and really, really focusing in up to the point of like checking in every day, like how are you, mental health okay? You know, that kind of collaboration has to go that deep and uh, eventually just speaking your truth to power because yes, inevitably there are going to be echo chambers but they hear us and one day when we do break through those echo chambers like can we lead, can we be in those positions to be responsible with that power? They hear you and they're shaken as well, Dinesha. Adding to that, especially as someone who does not have a personal collective. Uh, I think the baggage, maybe to answer that question, it's the reason why there's collective baggage is because it's possible to be a problematic person and be a good spoken word poet. It's possible to be both of those things. And that's what messes up collectives. Because the art overrides the person, overrides the friend, and then you add relationships like friendships and things like that. So when all of these cross, that's when you have collective baggage. Um, I think for me, I find... I, I may not necessarily have collective per se, but I notice when, like what Subhash said, when it's hard to find people you can collab with, but when you find people you really can work with, you always want to work with them. Because you know this process is going to be effortless, for lack of a better word. So the collectives, like Jack said also, um, it can just be two people. That can be a collective. Enough synergy, right? So from there, because again, um, the question of mental health, self-care, it keeps coming up. I have to ask at this point, being spoken word poets, do you feel under pressure to perform your pain? And how do you actually check in on yourself or even remove yourself from the space so that you're not constantly commodifying yourself for the purpose of your art? 
aside from the fact that, yes, you have to be honest, you have to be earnest. Okay, well, I can go first, I guess. Um, for me, it's, that's actually been really simple. Um, for me, it's always about the people who do not have a voice or who have come before me, the four words afterwards, right? Absolutely, it's always to think about those who don't have this sitting here right now. Like, um, it, it doesn't, it's not so easy for me to even say yes to come to a festival or to do a show. It's always that process of, is it me? Must it be me? Can I say someone else? But I'm constantly reminded also that it's a small space. And as long as I keep that attention towards the people whose voices need to be heard, the people who have literally died for me to be standing here, and like being here to speak or being wherever I perform, um, it takes a lot. You know, it's a lot of prep. It's a lot of hard work, hard work and hard work. But um, yeah, it's really easy because I always just have to look at the reality of the, like what's going on in my region because I identify more as Southeast Asian than a Singaporean. I feel like it's an othering process that happens when I identify and say I'm Singaporean, you know, because that's just the way my country projects itself. But yeah, as long as the, the people who we are here for are at the forefront, I, for me, it's very easy to say it's all good. I'm here every single day. We're showing up. Uh, bit about self love and uh, what was the question? Uh, can can you like? Yeah, basically asking about. So how do you um, draw back yes. from constantly yeah. performing your pain just because you have to be honest so, in your work? Okay. So anyway, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, a few years back, I I watched a documentary uh, on a hip hop jazz uh, artist uh, Questlove. So, Questlove said that he's growing up. He had a lot of pain. Um, just spare the details that most his father died. His his mother died also a uh, horrible death. But funnily enough, he doesn't put that in his artwork. He doesn't put it in his craft. He makes it that oh, that's just personal story. And I guess. Depending on what type of artist do you want to be? Do you want to write the pain? Or do you want to keep it personal? Uh, for example, a uh, few years back also, I found uh, this is Malay po uh, poem by, by a Malay poet that is quite problematic uh, for me. Even though I've, 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 I've talked to uh, other people that are more uh, experience and in, in the field, I, I still feel that it's problematic because he, he's writing about metaphors, you know, uh, oh, the sun is, uh, nah, this, is a, this is poetry for this, that is poetry for that. And this one particular line, th that poem is okay, the whole, the entirety of the poem is okay, but there's this one line that doesn't really sit well with me. Poverty, uh, I know, um, a place to lie down is poetry for the homeless. That is quite problematic for me because how can you say that? You want to talk about homeless? I've been doing masters. I didn't have a place to stay in KL. Six months. I've been sleeping in my uh, back then girl girlfriend's car. But do I need to write about me, me being homeless? 
if it, if it helps, yeah, why not? But do I have to keep on saying that, oh, this homeless, that homeless? Whereas now I've, I've, I have a roof under my, uh, under my head. So do I, like you said, do we need, do we need to commodify our, commit, commodify our pain? We need to be self-aware. Like until when we are selling our pains, you know? But then again, Matthew Zebrudel said that uh, grief can silence us. But to grieve true, we need to speak. So if you need that healing, go ahead, speak on, write on. But if it's detrimental, it's malicious, it's, it's, it's self-hurting, I, I hope you can find another way in dealing with your pain. Yeah. Mafak? I think, well, thank you for the question. It's very interesting. I think artists and poets, uh, poets uh, don't sell. Uh, we're not selling poetry. Uh, it's, it's, it's a matter of expressing. Me, as an expressive person since childhood, I have no problem with reciting or expressing myself. I have no problem with this. But also, I, a few weeks ago, I, I wrote this piece about vulnerability. And I was discussing with other poets that we don't celebrate vulnerability as the Western world does. Why? Why do we feel ashamed of our vulnerability? I am a vulnerable person and I love it. I embrace my vulnerability and I perform it and I say to the people, I am vulnerable. Because when you say it and when you embrace it, you're stronger. And so I, I don't feel pressure. No, I love it. I love it when I tell my story. I love it when I tell what really happened. So I think... Thank you. I didn't see that coming. But <laughs> I heard it coming. <laughs> so I think vulnerability is, is very important. Um, I, I think purely within the context of spoken word poetry, um, a friend of mine, occasional mentor and fellow artist, Melissa Rani T. Selva, once said this to me when I was starting spoken word. She's alive, Jack. No, yeah. People are going to think she's dead. No. Okay. No, like... okay, okay. She's alive, by the way, okay? Um, when I was starting spoken word, she told me this, let the poems lead the way. And I think with, like, within the context of spoken word poetry and mental health, if you are performing a poem and it starts getting difficult to perform, your poem is telling you something. Stop performing it. So I remember when one of the reasons why I started slamming is because I have a racism poem and it's a poem that I, I try to bring out whenever I notice that I'm the only one who can talk about it in a space. Um, I was performing it a lot in the year 2017 until I got to the point after I finished an event and I said, I can't do this anymore. It feels like the poem has died, right? And I remember reaching out to Mel and Vesha, we were all in a WhatsApp group, and I said, I don't know what to do. And then she said, adding on to that, she said, let the poem lead the way. If it needs to rest, let it rest. And I never touched that poem again for at least two years. But now I can go back to it. I can bring that poem out again. But that poem needed to rest in that moment because that particular trauma that I was constantly reliving needed to stop. I needed to do other things. So I think letting the poem lead the way is very powerful. And you should listen. 
needing it to stop. Uh, Nana, do you have anything to add or perhaps Preeti? I think, okay, so for me personally, back, I don't do spoken word. So I do comedy, I do YouTube videos and satire online. So back in Singapore, I'm pretty much like a social media personality, which is an influencer and now a dirty word. I get it. But that's why it scares me to say Not it. when your but likes are real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but so as an influencer, it's very tricky when you want to talk about your mental health because sometimes a lot of people just, they use mental health as their content. But I think personally for me, I use my content to help my own mental health. So it's because I do what I do that that's why I keep sane. That's why no matter what happens, as long as I have my loved ones, I have form, I, I can keep doing what I do. That that kind of keeps my mental my mental health in check. Yeah. Nana, when um, the spoken word arena teaches you how to bleed but not how to stop, how do you work around that? So um, it was this year that I started really thinking about uh, crafting because pain is what we are, honestly. Like a lot of, especially spoken word poetry, a lot of the poems do revolve around pain and trauma. And I get it because pain and trauma are unique to everyone. Like I might have a harassment story, but my harassment story is different from another person's harassment story. However, I came to the realization that a lot of times trauma and pain are being encouraged irresponsibly without the aim to heal. And when you share pain and trauma, I, I see that you are actually inflicting other people with secondary trauma. So from then, I become more and more conscious of my work, my craft, to not inflict pain and trauma. And being aware of my privileges of, you know, I, I am seemingly in a cishet relationship. I have good friends. I have a strong support system, strong-ish support system. And I am in a position where I can share a story without hurting other people by sharing my hurt, but instead showing hope and joy. As spoken word poets, as Preeti herself as well, as a performer, someone producing content though, what role does the digital space play in being a marginalizing arena, despite the fact that when you speak up in person, your audience is there. They are generally going to be a support system of safe people, a safe space. How do you deal with the online side of things, though? I would say social media is quite the dangerous space because <laughs> um, it's, it's so crazy how fast things happen. So like the brown face video that we talked about, it didn't even go that viral before the state asked us to remove it. So it's quite crazy because like, we don't even know like, who's actually controlling these things. And we hear so many things uh, after the video went out, after we got our warning. We, I hear people telling me that, oh, apparently like, a, the government contacted Facebook to take it down, but Facebook kept it up because it doesn't violate their guidelines. So it's so, it's so crazy. It doesn't. It, I, I can say anything I want on Facebook unless it's 
sensitive content, but that didn't fall under it. It was just me with a couple of vulgarities, <laughs> but that was it. So it was so crazy to hear all these like, like different conspiracy theories behind my back. But, and, and it's so insane how fast things happen and how, yes, I, would, I would not say social media is a safe space because it's, your content goes everywhere and anywhere at the same time. You cannot just limit it to a certain amount of people. And that's crazy to me because some, the amount of haters that exist online or the amount of fake accounts that exist just to spread hate, like that is, that is mind-blowingly insane. And I never like, worried about things like hate online because as a, as a thick brown girl, you are going to get hate online. You are going to get someone making fun of you for how you look, your size, and just because you're brown, like you're just going to get that. And that, that's a given. So I never worried about that. But after the video, it was scary because people were saying things like, oh, the government should revoke Priti's PR status. And I'm like, no, I'm Singaporean. That's why I'm angry. <laughs> you know, so it, but the comments are hilarious. So if anything, I deal with, with everything uh, through humor, comedy, just making fun of the situation, making fun of myself. So I laugh through all these comments. And now I can, I can sit here and make fun of all the dumb comments I received throughout the entire thing. But of course, during, during the period, it was insane. But I kept telling myself that, this is literally someone behind a keyboard and not worth my time. If you want to engage in an actual conversation and ask me my intentions behind the video, why I did what I did or what I stand for, sure. But if you're just going to comment with a fake account like Bunny Jen Jen, you know, something like that, I'm not going to acknowledge you, you know. If it's online, at least I have, the, I have the right and I have the power to just hide the comment, block and move on. So I think... As much as it's a very dangerous space, I'm glad I'm, I'm still in control of my page and I have the power to do those things, which, yeah, which makes it an okay space for me to exist on. So you control it, Malfuck? It's, it's very dangerous, as uh, Pretty was saying, but yet it's very effective. We drove the government crazy online in Syria. We really did, and uh, that was because of we, we managed to, to uh, create content and it, it goes everywhere, so we, all, uh, we, we were all connected online. Uh, I remember once I was um, besieged in my, in my neighborhood for one month, and uh, then I, I started writing these diaries and posting them online, and that, those diaries weren't really personal, but were about the whole neighborhood and what's happening, and how I made friends with people that I never met in this neighborhood, although we lived together in the same area. This voice was needed, and this is how we connected, actually, in, in, during the revolution. It was so important. The online platform for poets or artists is important these days because we don't get to, to, to be on stages easily. Not every day either, right? Um, I want to direct this to Subhas because we were speaking also about uh, what are the definitions, what are the parameters of nationalism, of patriotism. We all come from states which, to quite a large degree, oppress freedom of expression. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, often it's the people who care the most and do the most work um, to critique, to hold accountable power um, that get painted as the, the traitors, you know? Sedition, yo, that word is, are you crazy? It's me, seditious? But that's the, that was the, the law, that's the law. That's, so I think I've stopped referring to uh, whatever is codified in black and white as, a, as any moral opinion or anything a long time ago. Um, and I, I guess it's really important to have that space where you can connect with other people who are doing the work. Like, what would Singapore be without Alfian, uh, Alfian Saad? 
or Pooja Nancy or all these other amazing artists. So I think it's important to also know like when to push, when to pull, just like social media, right? Um, for me, the key is moderation. The key, it's easy, like one thing I've learned over the years is it's, easy, it's harder to say enough than it is to say no. So like me saying like, to all vices, to, to whatever it was, like whatever you need to wean off, like for me, it's always been easier. Uh, it's always been the struggle is to how to have a healthy relationship with this thing. And for social media also, for me, I don't give the government any data that I don't want out there uh, because it just, they, they track everything. I bet after today saying spoken words so much, I'm going to scroll through Instagram and get mic stands on offer for me. So it's like, it's one of those things like they, they have all our data, all, all, there's no privacy, right? It's a myth. Um, and knowing that, it's also about sometimes when to kind of like knowing what content goes best on social media, what kind of, how, how um, flammable uh, <laughs> what your content is, when to put it out there. Like some spoken word pieces or some pieces, I, I have a piece called Riot, okay? And uh, I, would, I won't perform that <laughs> anywhere, um, but it needs to exist. And it can exist on Spotify. It can exist on, on certain spaces. But the job, the onus is on me to not let Spotify or whatever is online to only live as archival pieces. I got to put the legs behind my work and make sure that if I ever go back to that piece in five years, when I try to make a second version of my debut album and it had the same title, Napa, Not a Public Assembly, version two, that I have to speak about some issues in past tense. I must do the work from now to then. So yeah, I don't trust anything that I see on social media. But just think about, sorry if I'm taking up too much time, just think about this, okay? The, I don't know if it's the same here, but in Singapore, they are trying to co-opt our spoken word artists, our rappers, they're trying to co-opt all these people. Look at our government campaigns, they're all people who are in this space. And you look at your peers and like, weren't we in this together? Like, it's, 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 it's teams that are selling out, but you still got to support because you never want to put down another brown artist. So for me, it's always difficult that holding my tongue is that, that lesson I'm learning, just like, okay, fine. This person got to go get their money. I'm never going to count that coin. Just do what you need to do. But then the onus becomes back on me. Can I now also have collaborate with you and, or at least let you see how problematic, how important your position is and how problematic it is that that message got co-opted at that time because we can't lose you. But yeah, for me, it's, it's, they are so scared of the power of what this could be and our voices that they're quickly quickly trying to put a lot of money in front of us to say hey here are these messages that you can promote instead so yeah i think that's a huge issue you bring up and very temporal because the next thing i wanted to go into is sustainability how do you whatever it is pay your bills earn a living while creating art or is that not really possible and you are also burnt out Let's talk about being burnt out in a very physical, visceral manner outside of even mental health because of the work you do. Um, I'm going to share a piece of a gem uh, from a good friend of mine. Uh, he owns a collective in Malacca called Korm. Uh, he, was, he's, he was a guitarist for a Malaysian band called uh, Katel but it's uh, spelled K-H-O-T-T-A-L. I mean, he's a school teacher by, by day, and by night he's, he works on with um, his cafe, his uh, art collective, uh, art stuff, yada, yada, yada. 
during weekends, he he travels from you know going anywhere he wants to go as long as it's for art, and he is also uh, part of a collective that we band together. So a bunch of collectives for Project Rabat, Korm, and and a few we band together and we open an art space in Jakarta uh, near Good School, we, uh, which is called Kedutaan Ipoh. It literally means uh, Ipoh Embassy. So. Uh, I performed last year, I think, or last two years, uh, at his uh, space, uh, and I was, I was like, oh, I, I say, oh, I'm amazed how you, not only a school teacher but a public school teacher, uh, as any Malaysians, they will say that public school teachers is is hard, you know. <laughs> However, he said that to me, uh, I, and I, I was amazed. I said like. Uh, I respect that you can, this is your hustle. I mean, not morning you are a school teacher, night you do your art stuff. And he said something that I will hold on until the day I die. He said to me, Jack, what I'm doing art, that's just escapism for me. Because imagine if I do this full time. What do you expect me to do? Play golf? So yeah, like artists, if you, you do art in full time, what, what, what else we, we can do for our leisure? We play golf, ping pong, swimming or, you know? So it's important to have your day job, but also is, uh, and also focus on, still focusing on art. However, if your community, your uh, place, if for example, the, the States, you know, uh, have a market for for art, then go ahead. Because uh, if I'm not mistaken, Buddy Wakefield, uh, a spoken word, uh, American, uh, American spoken word artist, he sold all his belonging and was the longest uh, running uh, spoken word artist that toured in the States. It was the longest. And it took, you know, it took sacrifice. You know, he sell. He sold all of his belongings, all of his material stuff, just to go on tour. But then again, after you, after what happens after after a period of while, that the money that you you sell from your stuff, uh, how long will it sustain you? So, your shows sustain you. Your your community sustains you. Your basically your ecosystem. Yeah, the key word is ecosystem. You need to know, regardless in Singapore or in uh, India or in US or in Malaysia, you need to know what is your ecosystem, how is your ecosystem like. For example, that's, then that's why when, if people ask me, uh, are you a poet full-time or, uh, or part-time, I would, I would answer, oh, I'm a poet. Ikut sekati masa. It basically means a uh, uh, poet that is whatever I like. Time. Whenever you like. Yeah. Nana, was there something to add to that? Um, I am still learning not to judge um, a person's individual choices, especially when it comes to sustaining themselves, when it comes to uh, getting, getting the bread. Yay, slang. Um, <laughs> I mean, I myself sold my soul to the devil. I work in advertising now. Um, however, if 
those personal choices are rooted in bigotry, are rooted in the oppression of others, if that personal choice is causing harm to a community, is siding with abusers or, or siding with those who side with abusers, I cannot in good faith condone that, the use of my platform to condone that kind of harmful behavior. So in a way, you know, to prevent burnout, that it goes down to, this is my self-care. I, I may see you and your achievements and go, be, still be like, good for you, but in my own little way, you know, try to build a safe space that grows to also be safe for other people as well. While keeping your finances in mind. Dinesha, very quickly, because we will open it up to the floor for about five. Just, I think just purely finance stuff. I think the starving artist mindset needs to die. I think we need to stop using those words. I think we should just pretend they never existed. Um, because I think the more we perpetuate it, the more it will stay. Just do whatever you gotta do to take care of yourself in, like Nana said, ethically ways, of course, as much as possible, uh, but just take care of yourself, full stop. All right, brilliant. So I'll end the official-ish part of this session with a quote from Ala Salah, the Sudanese revolution icon. One of the lines that she said and that was oft quoted um, in the aftermath and by those around Sudan was, the bullet doesn't kill. What kills is the silence of people. And with that, I ask you to be loud. Let's open it up. <laughs> Hands up and we'll come to you with a mic. Hello, hi. hi. <laughs> Good to see so many familiar faces on stage. Um, I'm Lily. Um, uh, I guess my question is, um, as a young writer in Malaysia, I feel like it is really hard, right? Um, I, to be an artist, I guess, in Malaysia is already very hard. To be a writer is hard. And I feel like to be a poet sometimes uh, is to be like at the back door. Um, so one, like, do you agree with that? And then two, um, what do you feel like you need as young poets or young artists uh, in Malaysia to grow, like to become more critical artists, um, to, be, to, uh, to build stronger bodies of work, to build a stronger ecosystem? What do you feel like you need? What do you want from older writers or from um, artistic institutions? And then I know that Mwafa, you have like a very strong poetry community uh, in the Arab world. What what do you do online um, uh, together? Um. I'll answer the question that was pointed to me. Um, I actually have two lives. This is what I feel. I have the online life where I still communicate with my own people and with the people that I always performed to and real life where I'm in Malaysia and I perform in Malaysia. I am trying to keep as much as possible with those people because there is where I can uh, put my work, the original work, and there where uh, the content is fully understood. Uh, 
I have a SoundCloud channel where I um, just record my poems, uh, sometimes make videos, and I keep writing every day. There's uh, some people complains about me. They blocked me because I write one post a day, maybe or two, three, depends. So I just tr I, I try to keep on with with that with with that side. On the other side, coming here and being here in Malaysia was also a challenge because the way we look and understand poetry here is different. So I had to cope to that, and I had to find my way into this poetry scene and to, to balance as much as possible between the poetry I understand and the poetry that is wanted and needed here. And it was so difficult. A lot more support needed, evidently. Any other hands up? Uh, did you want to respond to Bas? Of course. Just also really quickly, uh, just as, I mean, I'm 27, so I guess you fly. But then, uh, I guess for me, it's about my, my friend has a tattoo on his hand that says, be brave. And I think that's what every time I think about, I don't think about what bravery means, but every time there's that voice that is always asking, to do, that defers um, for, for, like, to ask for permission or to ask for forgiveness for being who I am, like, I've learned to banish that voice and just do and just be who I am. And um, so, yeah, I think the also one thing, like for, I, I, I think it's so important when like young people, right? Like, I guess like maybe who are 16, 17, younger than I am. Um, it's, it seems like the older you get in life, the less power you have as an individual. Because I mean, kids can get away with anything if you say it in school. If you're a college student, that's the best time, <laughs> you know? You always can point the arrow at the institution or say like, you know, school project, right? So I think it's very important. Like I today work at Yale and US College. I graduated from there. I went back to work there. Um, and anytime students have anything that they feel like they want to say, they come to me and the best advice I say, hey, if this is the hill you want to die on, this is the best time to speak. Go do something. They listen to you. They don't listen to me, right? So that's, that's all I have to say. Any other hands? Yes. Hi. Uh, I have a very strong personal view that spoken word poets need to be and have the duty to be unapologetic. One of the panelists mentioned that when we write about our pain, we need to be sensitive and not hurt others as well. So in that process, do you think that we are censoring ourselves? And brilliant question. That's the one I didn't have time to jump into. Is there self-censorship? in the spoken word community? I, I do not think being aware of craft as self-censorship. I can still talk about pain without being cheap and boring and graphic about it. You know, it's poetry. Write beautifully, even if it's about pain. Even when it's about pain. Any others? If not, with that, we close this panel on... No, I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead. That, the premise of that question is that self-censorship is a bad thing. And I don't necessarily, like, I don't know if, I mean, jump in anytime now. But I also think, like, for example, knowing, being self-aware enough to know which spaces that we should not be or that the spaces that don't need us to fill in that space is also a form of, if you want, self-censorship. So I think... 
it's about the narratives that go behind that, the intention that goes behind that. So yeah, I think in some, I've had to self-censor at some points, even in my own poetry. But if I don't like censor certain parts of the song, the rest, the 98% of the song never gets heard. So in some ways, I know like, yo, some people need to hear this 100% and I'll, I'll take whatever comes with that. But like, yeah, it's a constant negotiation between um, who we are, who we must be, and like, who we're performing for. I think it's, it's actually quite responsible artistry, if you ask me. Okay, Jack, very quickly. I think we're already slightly over time. Uh, yeah, quite simple. I, I just uh, thought of it. It's very simple because when the keyword is censorship, right? Okay, censorship by by the government or by you know the man, you know, or, or people that is other than ourselves uh, have power over us. And different difference between self censorship is self. I think self-censorship is okay because you are full, you, are, you have full autonomous on your work, on your craft. For example, there are children in the room and I have fuck, like, like my poems are fuck this, fuck that, blah, 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 fuck, 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 fuck. Oh shit, there's a kid. Oh. What happens? Okay, I don't, I, don't, I don't need to perform that poem. But does that make, does that make me a sellout? You know what, I don't, you know what, if, if, if making me a sellout, uh, if making me a sellout means that I have to be uh, aware of children or you know sensitive matters on hand, then I'll I'll sell myself one thousand times and more. Wonderful. Okay. Questions, considerations, conclusions. Thank you all, ladies and gentlemen. You've been wonderful.